before we uh, get into <clears throat> the Tay Show proper this morning, I'd like to uh, share something with you on the screen, if I can figure that out. Uh, this, is, this is prompted by, we are, this is our second weekend taking care of a uh, four-year-old princess, so um, I thought I'd share something very relevant. This is the four, Buddha's Four Noble Truths for a four-year-old. Sometimes people feel sad. The truth, number one. Sometimes the things that make people sad is not getting something they want or getting something they don't want. And there is a way not to be so sad about getting what you want or getting something you don't want. And the way is not think so much about what you want at all, but instead think about how much you can be kind and helpful into your family, your teachers, your friends, other people, animal, bugs, and everything that lives. So I think we could all we could all use this kind of four year old wisdom, couldn't we? Okay, so why don't we uh, do what we've done before? I'd like to invite people to unmute yourself as I give the talk today and ask questions, and then afterwards we'll have a we'll time for feedback and questions as well, and um, we'll just see how that goes. Okay, so we'll be continuing our exploration of the Mumon, or excuse me, the Hakiganroku. This is case number sixteen. Uh, I'm going to sk actually skip the introduction in the verse because it's a long introduction and long verse. And we'll just sk skip straight to the main case today. Uh, and the main case goes like this. A monk once asked Jingqing, I'm breaking out, so I asked the teacher to break in. Uh, and as a response, Jingqing said, Can you live or not? The monk said, if I weren't alive, I'd be laughed at by people. Then the teacher, Jingqing, responded, you too are a man in the weeds. And that's the end of the case. So again, I'll read it one more time. A monk asked Jingqing, I'm breaking out. I asked the teacher to break in and... Jingqing responded by saying, can you live or not? Uh, the monk said, if I weren't alive, I'd be laughed at by people. And Jingqing said, you too are a man in the weeds. So <laughs> what's going on with this uh, perplexing case here? First of all, um, let's start with, I'm breaking out. I asked the teacher to break in. Um, I don't know how many of you have uh, ever worked with or raised chickens. Anybody? No? Okay, so some people have. Um, so this, this, uh, this opening question by the monk is actually referring to this process of uh, 
that a chick and a hen go through. And in Zen, we use that as a metaphor for the, the process of practice, uh, the process of also working with a teacher, and um, ultimately of waking up. You know, when a chick is ready to hatch, it will begin tapping, pecking from the inside of the egg. And hearing this, the mother hen responds with an encouragement tap from the outside. And so this is an important metaphor, not only um, because of its importance between the student and teacher, but also about the process of growth itself. The image is so rich and it can be taken in so many different directions. But why don't we, why don't we explore some of those? Um, first of all, and probably I think most importantly, uh, before we jump into the hatching part, which is what this metaphor is getting at, um, you know, it, it reminds me as as a as a elementary school student, we had I think some incubated eggs. I think it was first grade. It might have been it might have been second grade, but I think it was first grade. We had some incubated eggs, and like all elementary school kids, the the um, the the kids were all waiting for that moment when. Um, the eggs would hatch. But as a, in terms of spiritual practice, and that's what we're talking about here, it's important for us to sit in and appreciate the process of incubation and not just skip to the hatching process. Too many people want to hatch too fast. Especially in this instantaneous culture of ours, right? There's a lot of underdeveloped chicks out there. And in spiritual communities, this is very true. Even in, as spiritual guides, um, teachers... This can be true as well. So um, just a warning that this, this, there are no shortcuts when it comes to true Dharma practice. It's a slow cook. It's a slow cook. Um, and it really takes a long time. In, in fact, it's endless. As Master Dogen reminds us, he said, the deeper or further out you go, the deeper it gets. So much, much longer than people realize. So first and foremost, the most important thing is to stay in the nest and not to jump from one nest to the other because when we do that, of course, we never get warm enough because not only do, do, does the, uh, the nest and the mother hen provide warmth, but the other chicks do as well. And so... This metaphor can be extended to this work of Sangha that we are all in it together and we're all providing this warmth that we need in our own growth. 
So the student, in this case, is telling the teacher that he's ready to break out. And likewise, he wants his teacher to break in. And, you know, I've I've heard um, similar things over the years from students, and yet... Most of the time, from the mother hen's perspective, more incubation is needed. Um, one, of the, one of the things that has been a positive development in American Zen is uh, its accessibility. You know, the, in Japan, at least traditionally, I don't know how it is these days, but at least traditionally, when someone wanted to learn about Zen, uh, they would go to a monastery and well let's just say it was tough there were no there are no classes or workshops for zen training uh, and rarely would a teacher greet you with any kind of smile or welcome and in some ways uh, it's a very honest and upfront picture of the difficulty of zen or really any any true spiritual path, and for that matter. Uh, and here, it's I think it's worth delineating what that means. Uh, true spiritual work, um, really, any spiritual work is about uh, experiencing something greater than our narrow minds. I think that would define any spiritual, true spiritual tradition. And that kind of work can be very demanding. And in the West, most most teachers, most Zen teacher uh, teachers are what we call in in the Zen uh, tradition very grandmotherly in their kindness. And you know the upside to that is that it opens the door for so many people to encounter the Dharma. But the downside is that it can give an unrealistic picture of how much effort it really takes to see past our own narrowness and our own delusion. And this is why Zen appeals to so many people, and yet very few actually practice it on a regular, consistent basis over the long haul. And a great deal of what this koan, this case from today, points to is right effort. Right effort which is one of the facets of the Eightfold Path that we spoke about. When was it? Last Saturday? Was it these weeks tend tend to fly by? Um, I think it was last Saturday. And to remember that the Eightfold Path is uh, a unified field of practice. This is very important to remember. Each facet exists independently. And in Zen, of course, we tend to emphasize the seated concentration part of the path, but the path functions as a whole. So the Buddha talked about right effort, but he talked about right effort. Here's a surprise for all of us uh, very serious Zen students. He talked about right effort as joyful enthusiasm. Joyful enthusiasm. 
he really saw right effort as an antidote for laziness, our own sloth. But it also works against the smaller gains that he saw as um, that most people settle for in their growth as a way to push forward past the small gains that we usually become uh, okay with towards something greater. I think one of the more, uh, maybe perhaps more modern um, Western uh, reasons to really emphasize right effort is how easy it is in our culture to check out, to check out physically, mentally, uh, to zone out psychically. And then what comes from not, it, the, what results from checking out, which is, which is, uh, again, what I spoke about on last Saturday, which is not caring, not caring. It's one thing to know that wisdom and seeing beyond our narrowness is possible, but it's another thing to care about doing something about it. There can be a very hypnotic and seductive quality to um, that can keep us stuck in our life. And so right effort is also about putting ourselves up against the edges of life. And in Zen uh, training, that means being challenged in many different ways. And that's, of course, one of the functions of doksan, uh, the one-on-one encounter with a teacher and you see this in the dialogues. When you read the traditional Zen literature, you see that there's always a challenge involved. And this is very purposeful. So the practice should always be a balance between um, support on the one hand and challenge on the other. As it says, which I didn't read in the introduction to ca- this case, the Secho, the uh, compiler of the Blue Cliff Record says, with one hand we push down and with one hand we lift up. With one hand we push down, one hand we lift up. What this really means is that we push down, meaning we hold fast um, in Zen, uh, very strict standards, challenge because that's necessary to grow but also lifting up with the other hand to support to offer encouragement to keep going that is if we want if we want liberation and ultimately that's up to every one of us whether that's what we want and so the the Buddha or any teacher can only point the way. But the rest is up to us to break free of our shells. This is, in Zen terms, this is our life work. So first of all, 
to realize what those shells are. What are we talking about? But once we have identified what this shell or shells are, to really feel how confining these self-created shells are. Of course, uh, again, we can use this metaphor to describe many kinds of shells, psychological, uh, relational, the shells of self-criticism, the shells of habitual habits, habit forces, the shell of rigidity, predictability, liking things to be very predictable, shells of avoidance, and on and on it goes. So maybe as we're talking, uh, some come to mind for you. But in Zen terms, they all boil down to the same thing which is the same basic problem, no matter what we're talking about in terms of a shell breaking through. When we're in it, we're alone and isolated, unfulfilled. And so change is necessary. But to change, we need to recognize how confining that space actually is and to understand what that shell is made of. All the strategies and habits and the karmic reinforced patterns that uh, lead to that calcification process that has encased us. So at times as we're pecking from the inside trying to crack open can be really helpful uh, to acknowledge, actually, uh, to feel gratitude for, believe it or not, for these shells, because uh, while we have outgrown them, or are beginning to outgrow them, they once served us. They once played an important role in our life. It's like relationships in, in a sense. You know, people tend to want to just, when a relationship ends, there can be a tendency to demonize the other person. You know, oh, they were never right for me. And that's a kind of a coping mechanism in a sense to try to make sense of this relationship that falls apart. But instead, I think the healthy thing is to slow down and to pay attention to and really honor what we once did. Even the unhealthy things that we, those unhealthy shells that we inhabit. Because when we, when we I, my experience is, when we try to move on too quickly from things, um, when we try to break out of things too quickly, it can actually be another prison. We're trying to move on. 
trying to ignore. That itself can be a shell. And I think using this metaphor, the worst thing that happens when we try to move too quickly in our growth is that we become, we, we hatch and we're this underdeveloped chick, right? That's what happens. Even, even um, teachers, as well-intentioned as they might be, uh, need to let students, this is not just Zen, this is any teaching, need to let students find their own way, to struggle to find their way out because uh, that underdeveloped chick might hatch. And it reminds me of this story that you may have come across uh, for all of you uh, folks that have read Hakuin, Master Hakuin. This great 18th century uh, Japanese Rinzai Zen teacher He writes in his own autobiography, he writes about an experience he had um, with a cicada. And it goes like this. I'll just read from his autobiography. He says, One day in the Mino province, I observed a cicada casting its skin in the shade, and it managed to get its head free, and then its hands and its feet emerged one after another. Only its left wing remained inside, still caught to the old skin. It didn't look as though it would ever get that wing unstuck. Watching it struggling to free itself, I was moved by feelings of pity to assist it with my fingernail. Excellent, I thought. Now you are free to go on your way. But the wing that I had touched remained shut and would not open. That cicada never was able to fly as it should have. Looking at it, I felt ashamed of myself and regretted deeply what I had done. When you think about it, he says, present-day Zen teachers act in much of the same way when they guide their students. I've seen and heard how they take young people of exceptional talent, those destined to become very pillars and ridge poles of our school, and their ill-advised and inopportune methods end up making them into something half-baked and unachieved. This is a direct cause of the the decline of the Zen school, the reason the Zen gardens are withering away. Zen Master Hakuin. So this student in this koan for today approaches Jingqing and says, I'm breaking out. I ask you, teacher, to break in. The, what this student fails to realize is, how, um, is that the teacher is always breaking in, in Zen. The teachings are always present, in other words. They're always available to us. This is really important for us to realize. All we have to do is turn towards them. It's very difficult to see that. But so, because instead we reflexively are always saying to ourselves, or maybe out loud, we're always saying, 
things like, well, why don't you do more to help me? Rather than see what's already present. If, if this student was so close to the time when he was going to break out of his shell, he wouldn't be thinking about it. He wouldn't be thinking about it. He would simply be doing it. In Zen, there is this phrase, when the student is ready, the teacher appears. And this is that accordance of effort and support. When we need support, it shows up. When we're truly ready for change, the universe will support us in that change. And a true teacher knows when a student is ready. This this process is well in. Uh, this is a, uh, a process that is steeped in, uh, that Japanese culture is steeped in. It's called, it's called uh, sotaku doji in Japanese. Sotaku doji. Chick and hen working in accordance, as I spoke about last week, accordance, working together. Like the foot before and the foot behind in walking. Like two arrows meeting in midair. These two phrases from the Sadonkai, the harmony of relative and absolute. So this student, if he was ready, he would be totally absorbed in his practice to the point of self-forgetfulness, not asking for help. One of the mistakes that we make in meditation practice and in life in general is too much self-reflection. Too much assessing where we are. Where am I? Where am I? Where am I in my life? Where am I in my life? Do I, am I there yet? I don't feel quite so happy. So let me think about it a little more. Let me just keep ruminating about it. Am I on the right path? Am I doing the right thing? A certain amount of self-reflection, of course, is important. It's healthy. But the more we do that, the more we reify this self-concept, this shell. The more we self-reflect, the more the shell of self becomes calcified. People say things, I've heard this actually from students. People have said to me, why aren't you tougher on me? Well, why? Because maybe when you ask a question like, why aren't you tougher on me? You actually need the opposite. Or the opposite. Why are you so tough on me? The, the importance, there's an importance of having somebody that has walked the path ahead of us. But if we're projecting 
our own ideas onto the path, if we're assuming we know which direction the path goes, we're going we're gonna to take the wrong path. It's very hard to see this process. And the true shell that we're talking about in this koan is actually very hard to see. Why? Does anybody have a sense of why? Because the shell is me. The shell is us. One of the, I think one of the cool insights that people have when they have a certain degree of practice under their belts is that they begin to see for the first time that they are not their thoughts. They are not their feelings. They are not their opinions. Our fleeting feelings, our fleeting opinions... As, as real as they can seem in the moment, in Zen practice, we, do, we are able to see through them, to get some distance and see, oh, this is just what the mind does. The mind does this, but this, the mind, meaning the brain, the, is not me. This is such a relief in a sense, when we can just watch all the kind of crap float by and go, yeah, okay, that's it's happening again. But I don't need to get into it. But then the question beg the it begs the question that if we are not our thoughts and we are not our feelings, if we are not our bodies, then what are we? And so this kind of question is at the heart of what Zen is the Zen method, this, this kind of question of honing in is the Zen method. And when, so when chicks develop, they grow what's called an egg tooth. I don't know if any of you have heard that term before. They have on the end of their beak an egg tooth, which is this kind of sharp proje- uh, uh, projection, uh, protrusion, that allows the chick to... Uh, First, it allows them to pierce through the membrane into the air sac so that they have enough oxygen to get through until they can hatch. But then after that, ultimately, the egg tooth helps them break out of the shell itself. And so koans, or questions, questioning in Zen is our egg tooth. It is the sharp tool of Zen. Without it, we stay in our comfortable little confined nests or eggs. We dull out. The student in this case is asking for the teacher to do something. He says, I'm ready when you are. Ready, (laughs) set, go, right? And it's almost like he's waiting. He's like, he's expecting some kind of magic to happen. And I fear that actually Zen people 
the new, especially new people, um, believe that teachers have some kind of magic to offer in Doksan or in Teisho or what have you. There's a kind of a romanticizing. This was especially true with the Japanese masters, Chinese masters that came to this country. But when we're in that state of mind, waiting for a teacher or our life to do something to show us the magic, the problem is we miss out on the real magic, which is what? Everything around us is the real magic. Jing Qing, the teacher, says back to the student, he says, are you sure you're going to live? If I start pecking, are you sure you are developed enough to come out? So the teacher here is testing this, this student. And I, I, as I was thinking about this case for today, um, I couldn't help but remember how unskillful I was in my own training with my teacher. How many times um, I was went to him chomping at the bit, wanting more, always pushing, always wanting to get to the next koan or wanting to give a talk or wanting to help with a workshop or, you know, and he would say, just sit. Just sit. I didn't realize at the time, I actually, I kind of realized it. I didn't want to admit it, how much more time I needed in the egg. I wasn't ready. So, you know, him saying, stop pecking. Stop, you're not ready yet. And then, of course, I would try my best to do that. Okay, I'm just going to sit. And then, <laughs> and then, as soon as I got comfortable there, he would say, okay, time for the next call on. Why don't you give a talk? It's like, oh, shit, I just got used to, you know, not pecking, not tapping. It was hard for me to accept, actually, that that was teaching. You see, that was the tapping itself. And that's very hard for us to, uh, again, this cultural thing. I think we're so impatient in this culture. On Friday, we were watching the, um, the PBS NewsHour, and um, they were interviewing this guy, Marty, um, Marty Barron, who was... He's retiring from being the editor of the Washington Post. Uh, he's been there for something like 12 years or something. And um, in the interview, he was asked about whether or not he thought that these days that people were more informed about um, the culture, politics, etc., uh, with all the access that we have to information. And he said this. He said that people are looking to be affirmed not necessarily to be informed. 
You know, in other words, they're looking for their own views to be affirmed rather than to truly take in the truth of what is necessary. So this student says, if I, he remember, Jing Qing asks him, are you sure you're going to live? If I, you know, basically, if I start pecking, are you, are you ready to live? The student says, if I don't, if I didn't live, I'd be laughed at. Here we see the stuckness, don't we? I'd be laughed at. How attached he is, how concerned he is about his appearance. And Jing Qing says, you're stuck in the weeds. You're a man stuck in the weeds. In Zen, you hear this word often, weeds. Sometimes we use the phrase like, he or she is a ghost clinging to the weeds, caught in the weeds. Or someone who has fallen into the weeds. Weeds are our thoughts and opinions, which is the shell. And so clearly, Jing Qing is disapproving of this student, isn't he? Or is he? Or is he? Remember, this is a koan. This ain't very straightforward. You're a man caught in the weeds. Clearly, that's a disapproving statement. But what if we saw it a little differently? When somebody challenges us, is it disapproval? Maybe Jing Qing is doing exactly what the student asks for. What does the student ask for? He says, I'm breaking out. Please break in. Be careful what you ask for. Breaking in. It's not always comfortable. Breaking out is not always comfortable. True change takes real honesty, and sometimes it's tough medicine that's necessary. So this master, Jingqing, is actually tapping from the outside by saying, you're a man in the weeds. You're stuck. What does that do? When, we, when we're challenged, do we say, oh, okay, fine, screw it. Or do we? Or is it motivating? You're a man in the weeds. Okay, well, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about this man in the weeds? Right? Get out of your head. Get out of the shell. <clears throat> in addition, and this will be the last point, in addition, I think Jin Qing is also pointing to the truth itself. You're a person of the, a person of the weeds, to put it more contemporary. Get, let's get this man-woman language out of there. You're, you're a person in the weeds. Now, even the Buddhas and ancestors are still in the weeds. That's one of the parts of the shell, is thinking that we need to get out of the weeds. Do you see? This is part of the problem, is thinking that we need to get somewhere. I need to break out. I need to grow. I need to change. Damn it. 
This idea is the real weed. The Buddha said that we're all whole and complete, just as we are. But to realize that, you know, that's the, the, the rub. That's always the rub. It always comes back to you. That's why in every talk I come back there, you know. And the only way that I know of to really see that truth that Jin Kuing is pointing to is daily zazen. <laughs>